0: Hello, hello. I'm Celeste, and this is Week by Week. On today's episode, I start out with a conversation with my husband where we talk about tools to become a better listener and ways to create emotional space for people. And later on, our guests are the wonderful Kristen Murray and Katie Krenz. Let's do this. Something I've been thinking about a lot recently is how we're often so quick to... When hearing a story that someone is sharing with us, listen for the similarities and listen for the places where you can go, yeah, me too. Or that reminds me of a time that this happened to me. And I think that that really does come from a good place Mm -hmm. of wanting to connect and wanting to relate and wanting to make another person not feel alone in their experience. But I think so often it pushes past and doesn't necessarily give weight to the specifics and potentially the differences of what someone is sharing with you. And then I think it's really easy to feel like you're not really being heard if you're sharing that and that's the response you're getting. And I've been thinking about this from a lot of different perspectives, both as somebody who can absolutely do that and be guilty of that because I... Everybody can. Yeah, because I I want to connect and Mm -hmm. I want to say like, oh, I get it. I get it. And then I also I think I've felt that recently where I sometimes will share something and I go, wait, can this just be the moment for a second before we move on to the next thing? Because there's room for the next story, there's room for the next moment, but sometimes you just want to feel like this moment landed first. Yeah. And that you can kind of take a look at this moment at hand or this experience that you're sharing. Yeah. So I've just been thinking about that that push and pull a lot recently. And I wanted to kind of open it up to you on a practical level and ask what do you think are tools or things that you personally, just to even make it specific, could try to be a more compassionate listener?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is something that I have really thought a lot about in the last few years in, in the context of our relationship. Mm. But I think that my, I'll just do it, go right to it. I think my mm. most practical trick or thing to try at the top of the list is ask a question first. Mm.
0: Don't jump to your own. Don't
1: jump to your own thing. Ask a or question your first. Assumed understanding. Right. Or your assumed su- understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Ask a question about some aspect of it because mm-hmm. you'll do two things when you do that, mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. experience. You give them an opportunity to go a layer deeper or add more specificity Mm -hmm. or create a little bit more room for emotional expression Mm -hmm. from that other person. Mm -hmm. So that they get the feeling that they've had more room Mm. to share with you more fully what that experience was like for them. Mm -hmm. And in asking that question and giving them that space, you can then listen a little bit more specifically to mm-hmm. those specifics, and you can say, "Do I have something that actually really resonates, mm-hmm. or actually really connects me with empathy to that person and what they were describing? Or is it not what I my knee jerk thing was? Mm-hmm. It's actually something deeper, something different than what I was mm-hmm. going to respond to quickly." Mm-hmm.
0: Because I think, especially in intimate relationships, you know, friendships or romantic or whatever intimate relationships you have in your life. That's when you really start to jump to the assumptions right. or I know this person. I know what they're going to say. I know right. generally how they think about the world. And so I'm kind of presuming mm-hmm. that I know where this is going. Mm-hmm. And that only leads to pain typically. And
1: we're just missing each other. Yeah. I mean,
0: pain well, or uh, yeah, missing or each just, other, or just
1: missing the opportunity to go deeper together. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, it can be painful. But it also can just be, you know, a missed opportunity. And that's too bad, too. But I think
0: that the, I guess there's two places where I would say pain, because it's the feeling of not being received, not feeling hurt. But it's also that you start to lose the mystery of the other person. Yeah. And that, I think, leads to, in my opinion, in my experience, that's how some of the flame starts to move away from your relationship, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. again, whatever type of relationship it is, but the, the heat, the importance of the relationship, because you could have this relationship by yourself in a room, (laughs) (laughs) you are assuming you already know what this person's going to do. So, but I, I think like bringing it specifically to pregnancy or fertility or parenthood, I think this is a place where it can get so painful because it's so intimate. These topics are so intimate. And on one level, it's really great because as you start to open up to people about these topics inside of that umbrella of themes, you realize how many people have had very similar experiences and you realize how much that there's really a community out there for you. So that's beautiful. But I think that. Because the stakes are so high and because when it is happening to you and something is scary or something is hard, even if it's happened a million times over, it also feels like it's never happened to anyone because it's never happened to you before. It's your life. It's your family. It's your identity. And so it feels raw in a way that I don't think you can even anticipate.
1: Yeah. And it's so fundamental. mm mm-hmm. It's bringing a child into the world, mm-hmm. I mean, or it's caring for a child. Care, or... I mean, it's. It, yeah. I mean, you you said pregnancy at the start. Pregnancy, of this, fertility, you know, yeah. parenthood, all but, of but yeah, all of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's incredible.
1: You know, if you if you are a parent, you have been on both sides of that relationship. Mm-hmm. You've been the child, and now you're the parent. You know, and you're reflecting back a mirror, but you're also seeing a totally new person, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's so complex yeah. and it's so specific. I'm just, I'm just piggybacking yeah. into what you said. There's so many levels to it and aspects to it that it's always unique.
0: Yeah. Yes. I think something that I've learned more, or it's been really solidified for me in a different way since becoming a parent, honestly, since going through my pregnancy is the power of when I'm sharing with somebody, somebody just going, wow that sounds so hard or wow i bet that was really scary or you know something like that where it's it's just creating space to be like yeah or if you don't feel that way you can say you know i actually felt like this or whatever but just the power of like somebody reflecting back to you what they're seeing what they're hearing And being able to sit with that and not trying to fix you and not Mm -hmm. trying to give you advice and not trying to change whatever your experience is. They have to sit with the discomfort of where you are right now and just trust that and just be in that moment, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. So that's my thought.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Great. Well, it's settled. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest today is Kristen Murray and Katie Krentz. Kristen is an advertising executive, and Katie is a TV producer, and they're the mothers of two daughters. They were so open and generous in sharing their fertility story with me. We cover their experience with IUI and IVF. We also touch on the financial side of their fertility journey, and I found this whole conversation really insightful and informative, and I loved getting both of their perspectives of the journey in this conversation to hear about what it was like to be going through it physically and the emotional impact of that for Kristen, hearing some of the tips and tools that katie used to really support and be present during that whole experience i found it really beautiful and i just think they're both incredibly special people and i can't wait to share this conversation with you so let's do this to start out do you mind telling me a little bit about yourselves i'm katie krentz we live in los angeles i am a
2: tv producer and I'm married to this wonderful woman, Kristen, who's also on the podcast. And we have two beautiful daughters who are one and four. I'm Kristen
3: Murray, I'm married to Katie. I work in advertising at an advertising agency in Playa Del Rey. Been living out here for about 16 years. Previously, i from Detroit, Michigan.
0: Will you tell me a little bit about your fertility journey? We'll start really broad and then we'll kind of hone in on the specifics.
3: Yeah, so Katie and I were married for about three years when we decided we were ready to have kids. You know, I will say there were a lot of discussions. We didn't just jump in one night, but we were missing a a pretty main component to make children. Luckily, my work has some fertility benefits, which is something I was very grateful for. So we we went to them first and our my insurance to find out. Who do I I didn't even know who to talk to? We had to find a fertility doctor. I talked to my OBGYN and got some recommendations, but we, we started off going the route of IUI. You know, we purchased some sperm using a sperm bank. We learned a little bit about that. We did a few IUIs, did a lot of monitoring of my, my fertility, my, my cycle. We did that for like four or five months before we even did an IUI. So, you know, just seeing if, trying to figure out if I ovulated on my own, did Clomid and, you know, didn't have a lot of success there. It took a while to, to learn about it.
0: I'm always surprised, especially when I got more in tune with my cycle, how much I didn't know or how hard it actually is to track or get the timing right. but it's wild to me that there's not more education about what that <clears> actual cycle looks like or how there are really only a couple of days a month that you can get pregnant, assuming your cycle even is a month mines long so it's it's really interesting as you start to get more information on that, I think,
3: yeah, even the amount of i mean I was going to doctor appointments a couple times a week, which you know just to go in there do an ultrasound find out you know how much was growing no one talks about that until you're actually deciding you're ready to have a child and then you realize how difficult it really is and yeah. there's such a, a slim chance it's going to work even with all these doctors you know talking to you and monitoring everything it's still so tricky so it's a wonder anyone ever gets pregnant
0: it's amazing how much has to actually work in a certain order in order for things to actually happen in choosing IUI, and forgive me because I'm not super well-versed in the process, mm-hmm. how did you decide that that was your first step or that's what felt comfortable as a way to start?
3: We really leaned into our fertility doctor. He talked us through the steps. We had some friends who had done IUI, even you know heterosexual couples that were having issues for one reason or other or wanted to speed up the process. We had met some people that had success with IUI, so we were excited to go that route. It's a lot cheaper. You know, you don't have to purchase as many drugs and you you just need the sperm. And it's the least invasive way in terms of fertility to get
2: pregnant. I feel like IUI, maybe all in was like three grand a try. And IVF, I think was what, like 14 to 17,000 a try. So when you think of that too, in our mind, we're like, okay, we could go up to like four tries, you know, and it could equate one IVF, like, you know, and, and we were very early on sort of in our, our journey, our fertility doctor was sort of, I think, leaning us to, you might as well just go straight to IVF. Like, you know, he was pretty adamant about just letting, having us go directly to that. But as we know, every, every person's journey is a little bit different. And Kristen, I think really wanted to try you know, we both wanted to try IUIA from a financial standpoint and B, because we were only in our minds currently sperm challenged mm-hmm. and that was really it. We we're like, let's see if we can, you know, do this in a more kind of natural way.
0: And that is a good point too, where it's, you just don't know what the journey is going to look like. So you have to do what feels most comfortable in your body and then make it take another step if it, you know, ends up needing another step. So yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. What was the process of selecting a sperm donor? How did you go about that? Like, what was that like?
2: Oh, my yeah. God. We we popped open a <laughs> bottle of wine. Yes. It was fun. I mean, you know, we used California Cryobank, which is one of, I think, the more well-known, not only even in California, but nationally, sperm banks. Babe, what were some of our prerequisites? Like, I think we wanted college educated. Because it is... It's kind of like travelocity for men, right? It's like it's like tra- like you click all of these different sort of filters of like what do or don't you want out of mm-hmm. your donor? And I think we kept it pretty pretty open of like okay, we wanted somebody that was college educated. I think I think we wanted six feet and above. And then the thing that was really sweet in all of it was again. So Kristen wanted to carry, and you know. Obviously biologically, I would not have anything to do technically with this baby, right? But Kristen was so sweet. She's like, we need to find we need to find a donor that looks like you, mm-hmm. you know, of like like that looks like it could be your brother, right? Yeah. And the other thing that we didn't realize until we started getting into it is that it is anonymous, mm-hmm. right? But they do provide you pictures of the donor when they were six to eight years old. Yeah. Oh
3: wow. Yeah. So you could see them when they were young.
2: Yeah. Just also sort of weird because you're like, give me your sperm. You're six mm-hmm. to eight in the photo. This is awkward. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, so we had two different donors though, right, babe? Yeah, we did. And
3: we did have fun with it because how often do people really get to like dig into the, the details of somebody's history, family history, before they select a partner? You know, you sometimes you meet, you don't know all those things before you fall in love or decide to have a kid. But one of the biggest things aside from, you know, education height and all that was their medical history, which
2: mm, that's
3: right. things that was really important to us because knowing I know most of my family history and we wanted to make sure we weren't doubling up on things. I have a grandma that had Alzheimer's. So mm. We really wanted to make sure because we can see all this data that we would go with somebody that doesn't have immediate family members with those those same conditions so that we could try to give our future children a, a better shot of not you know having things that are going to lead towards something like that, which was really hard too because when we read about the donors, it tells you how they, if they've lost family members, how they did. So it's an emotional journey. We learned if they lost parents and at what age and how. And so it was really emotional to read through all these things about the donor.
2: It was like a 10 page document for each donor. So like if you, once we whittled it down to maybe our top 10, then we really dug into that medical history. Mm -hmm. And it's like a 10 page PDF, tiny little grid Line 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 of every possible ailment, cancer, dysfunction, or anything, and they have to not only click it for themselves, but yeah, for their mother, father, both sets of grandparents, and then aunts, uncles, cousins. It's wow. it is so thorough, and honestly, like again, you know, when you when you think about, you know, we we were lucky in this way to be able to kind of really drill in, and and some of the people, the donors that that we really loved, did have heart health and dementia and Alzheimer's. And so mm-hmm. they they got pulled out and then, you know, other kind of more rare genetic disorders and things like that, again, you know, and look, we understand that this can be controversial for some people of that we quote unquote might be playing God in this moment, but because we are a queer couple that this is how we are able to get pregnant, mm-hmm. like to be able to have this amazing benefit of yeah. this document that why, why would we want to bring a child into this world that, you know, had all of these health issues against them? So yeah, it was, it was very emotional. It was really difficult. We got like down to like a couple and then you have to then decide how many vials of sperm you need, or you think you'll need, because you may run out of that donor. Like the donor only has X number of vials of sperm on call, (laughs) like in the locker Uh for anybody to purchase. And so what did we end up doing babe? Like eight or nine? I think we bought eight of our first
3: donor. We used all eight on our first IUI tries. We did four and our doctor used two vials per IUI for, you know, the the greatest chance. And so, you know, getting to our fourth IUI was a pretty emotional time. We met a a same-sex couple that had just done their fourth IUI and it was successful. And we met them right before we were gonna try our fourth or debating whether or not we were gonna do a fourth. And it, it felt like a sign that like, let's try one more before we go into the IVF route. Looking back, I think I was I was scared of doing IVF. I wanted to try IUI one more time, but our fourth didn't work out. We now know that it was all it was all meant to be because we ended up we had to get a new donor. So we went and we found a new donor who looks even more like Katie. <laughs> you know, we're really thrilled with that. We moved on to IUI and I think we bought we only bought like four vials.
2: It's about 800 to to $1,000 per vial. Yeah. Wow. We spent close to $8,000 for the eight vials for the, the donor that did not work. Wow. Yeah.
0: And then more for moving on to IVF. Yeah. Wow. Correct. Will you talk to me a little bit about the emotional journey of changing course and deciding that it was time to try something new?
3: I can remember... After the IUI didn't work on our fourth time, I went into our fertility doctor, just, you know, and, and I was, I think I was there for just a blood draw, but he pulled me into his office because he wanted to actually like, let's talk. Mm-hmm. I can remember every second of that meeting because I'm going to cry probably right now, but like.
0: I might too, honestly. <laughs> yeah.
3: I think he had already kind of hinted to us, we should go to IVF and and he's like, you know, IVF is is where we need to go. And I just, I just lost it. He asked me once I calmed down, like, you know, what is it that's making you cry? And I honestly, like, I couldn't answer him. I think, you know, we had known maybe a couple people who had done IVF, but not no one in our immediate circle. I didn't know anybody had really gone mm-hmm. through it. You Maybe you see things in television shows or you hear about it a little bit, but it, it seems so far out of anything I'd ever imagined for our fertility journey. It sounds invasive. You have to trust a lot of people. And it was just... Scary. It was daunting, and my fertility doctor said that to me. He's like, "Right now, this sounds really scary. Once we even roll into this within the first four or five days, it's going to be a lot less scary. And then you walk into the bubble, it's all going to be okay." And I think that's really why I wanted to talk with you today, because for me, that was actually true. Mm-hmm. Once I picked up my drugs for the first time and did my first shot, it was a lot less scary moving forward.
0: It's really interesting because, as you said, like I think we conceptually know all of these different methods to get pregnant, or all the complications that can happen. But then when you're going through it, I had different circumstances, but I had a really heavy bleed for my first trimester throughout the entire trimester. And it was really scary. And in that moment, I realized like, I'm constantly being told how many people are going through similar experiences, but I have no idea who to reach out to and who to talk to about this. And so I think that there's kind of a sobering aspect of this where you go, it's so prevalent, but I just feel so alone, and so I love that you've started to kind of share your story and connect with people on that because you realize how many people have something similar, something that goes, "Oh, it's like this for me," or you know, I I relate to this has somehow. Mm-hmm. What has it been like starting to talk to people about your experience more?
3: Ever since you know when we had our first child and we've gone through all different kinds of complications, I just. I have needed so many people in my life and our team, and we have, you know, we, we talk about our team and how they've helped us so much. The more we've talked about IVF and what that we've gone through it, we have so many people that come to us for, you know, people that we don't even really talk to that much that are, you know, that they're going through it, that they went through it at the same time as us and they, you know, wish we could have t- been talking together, that the minute you open the door, people rushing in to talk to us or ask us questions. You know, they need advice about an acupuncturist, a fertility doctor, you know, did you use a doula? You know, just we has so many questions. And so we just want people to know that we seem like people they'd want to talk to. We're open to it because it's tough and nobody's journey is the same. We understand that. Right. Sometimes it's hard to talk to people that are on the other side of it. I found that to be true. Yeah
2: it's an invisible club, right? Like once you decide you're wanting to have kids and, and then there's any sort of difficulty, right? Like you're in this group, right? And it it bonds you to these people. And and Kristen is just so thoughtful and kind and, and has been, it's been really cool to watch, you know, yeah, but either coming through people that I know or any people that I work with or friends of friends of friends hear about us, right? Like, oh, you're the couple that successfully had Two beautiful babies via IVF. Like we want to know everything. And so while Kristen is dealing more, I think with the mom who is, you know, going through all of that, I definitely sort of then would help a lot of either same sex parents, you know, the mom that's not carrying and, and kind of how you can be helpful and same with dads to be of, the IVF, like just the sheer amount of drugs and needles. And I was the person that every day would prep, you know, prep everything to like Mm -hmm. have all of the vials and all the needles ready and all the gauze and, you know, be able to inject. And it made me feel like I was being helpful and also like giving me sort of a little bit of control of like, I've got this, I want to help you. Right. And because Kristen obviously is putting her body through this and you know putting so much on the line for our family and i'm not going to get choked up but like yeah that you know you want to find those little ways that you can contribute and help and and ivf journey for a couple it really is a test it's a real big test of just like the number of appointments the number of you know injections and and then from a financial standpoint of like You have to be really on top of talking about money with your spouse or significant other because it, you know, for us, it was like basically the decision of we always knew that we wanted to have children and we knew that financially we were going to be in a different situation than all of our straight friends. And so we spent a down payment's worth of a house in order to get two children. And we are so happy for that. But it was a big kind of trade off.
0: Being the person who's not physically going through it, but still obviously very emotionally involved, is there any tips or things that worked for you that you could offer to somebody who might be on that side? Either you laid out a wonderful like kind of practical thing that helped, but maybe something emotionally that could help either the partner or you yourself going through it.
2: Something that really benefited me, and I know that not everybody can be in this situation, is that I had a job at the time that allowed me to be at every appointment Mm. and different couples have different ways of dealing that. Like, you know, a lot of times the woman is just going alone to her appointments. Right. And, and sometimes the spouse is coming and, you know, we'd be sitting in those fertility waiting rooms. And like, oftentimes if things were maybe not going great, you'd see both people there. And that was always hard for us too to kind of witness that of like, again, we're just a gay couple needing sperm. And so for a lot of that time, we were just trying to be really respectful of of the other couples in the room and not being like so excited or giddy because like this is all we've ever dreamed of is like Mm. being able to like have this but I think if you can go to the appointments like it just helps so much and also being the note taker
1: Mm. I, I was
2: taking a lot of notes for Kristen like either on my phone or a little paper pad like they're spouting off, you know, all these terms, you know, hysterosalpinogram. And you're like, oh, okay. Like I'm going to Google that later. But so just wanted to be a really good executive assistant to her and prep the needles, prep the stuff, make sure that she has the paperwork for her appointments. Like just all of those little things of being a catch-all for her. It was an honor to do it.
3: I'm sure you'll never look at an alcohol wipe pad without thinking of all of the needles. You know, she'd always like prep the little spot.
0: That's trust too. Yep. Well, I didn't let her do the needle. (laughs) Just to prep it. (laughs) (laughs) She had to have that
3: control. I needed that one.
0: (laughs) I feel that deeply. (laughs) For you, Kristen, is there something that you can share from your experience of going through the physical side of it? And I mean, both of you, again, in different ways emotionally that you found helpful.
3: Yeah. You know, I leaned pretty heavily into acupuncture when I started this, and it might not be for everybody. You know, sometimes I, you know, I, I think about it and I'm like, is it just the hour of calmness that I'm going there for? Are the needles really helping? But I had an amazing acupuncturist where the first 10 to 15 minutes of my appointment we would just talk. Mm. We would just talk about where I am in my journey. She would take notes so she knew like if I had an upcoming injection happening or an IUI, and she was just really well versed, but she knew exactly how to calm me down, how to remind me that like millions of people go through this. I'm not alone, even though I kind of feel like it, but you know, everything that I was feeling or the nerves I had was, you know, all very valid and, and normal for, for where we were in our life. And then we would do this session. I felt so much calmer after I came out of that appointment. I think that really helped me because I can overthink every little feeling in my body. Every time I thought I might be pregnant, it's just It's constantly being stressed and emotional about everything, even though everybody's telling you to stay calm. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. You know, you'll have a better chance of getting pregnant if you're calm. But yet all I could think about was, well, was that like, you know, did I just get pregnant in that moment? It's Mm -hmm. constant. So acupuncture for me was really helpful. I tried to stay active too, you know, doing exercise. I read some books on different like, you know, diet habits that we
2: should have during the fertility journey. Kristen's basically vegan. Also, before that, anyhow, like she was, you you'd eat fish, but like you weren't eating meat or dairy. Like you know, you were you were very healthy, kind of going into it. But yeah, and yoga, you'd do some yoga. That was like a, another kind of big thing for you. Yeah, anything
3: could, that could just help calm me down, even just you know remembering to breathe. That's great. <laughs> because I can't tell you the number of times I would sit in my car, either I got my period or. You know, I, I learned that I wasn't having enough follicles growing and I would just sit after those appointments and cry just because, oh, yeah. I don't know if this is the right way, but I felt, you know, this is the first, one of the first really hard times in my life where I had no control over what's happening. All women going through fertility issues, they have no control over it. Yeah. I can talk to my fertility doctor, but I can't control what's happening in there for the most part. And so I don't know if it was just failure or loss of control. It was, you know, just a, a lot of things I had to work through.
0: It makes sense to me. And from my own experience, too, we're currently trying again. And it hasn't, you know, been as fast as we were hoping for. And there is that sense every time you get your period of like this, like failure, like I didn't, it didn't work this month or whatever. And it's tough because on one level, I go, like, but you didn't fail. Like, you know, you're trying, you're doing it. But on the other hand, the stakes are so high that it makes the alternative to, yay, it worked failure, it kind of becomes binary. Were you able to find ways to kind of talk yourself through some of those feelings or is that just sort of part of the nature of the beast?
3: I can remember so many times. I I still struggle that this, you know, whenever we have new upcoming things happening, it's like, I'm a pretty positive person. I think I try really hard to look at the bright side of things, move through my day in a pretty calm manner. There's always going to be really hard stuff happening for us. I just try to breathe and stay positive and look at the good that's coming towards us. But it's when you're going through fertility journeys and you're trying to get pregnant, no matter how positive or excited you can get, you know that the the possibility of this not working is there. And so that crept in for me all the time. It's like, I'd be cautiously optimistic, but really I I was optimistic and then you'd be devastated. And so, you know, I just really tried to I don't know, put one foot in front of the other every day. You know, I had a great team of family around me. It was hard sometimes to share with everybody what we were going with. And talk to my mom and our friends and my sister. I can remember one time I started my period after an IUI and one of my girlfriends happened to call and she was driving around in her car and she's like, I'm coming to pick you up. And we just drove around and listened to like 90s music. I think maybe even Katie might have like messaged them to say like, come get her. And <laughs> that helped.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would try to make a point of like, at the end of the day, just talking to Kristen, because like, I'm, I'm pretty perceptive. I know my wife, I know when she's hurting and when she's sort of shutting down a little bit. And so it was always just like, giving the space at the end of the day to kind of talk a little bit and and just make sure that like, she knows how grateful we are, you know, as a family of, of what she's doing and, and reminding her like. It's just take it a day at a time, a meeting at a time, a task at a time and until you are pregnant and until you have the baby, you don't have that and it's just yeah, yeah it's all consuming and and I think in the middle of of the iuis and those not working, you know we were going to some birthday parties of our friends who had kids and like I can distinctly remember a couple of those times of you know it just felt like one kid after another walking through the party of like all these people that we sort of came up with at the same time. And, you know, and also that they were all like straight couples, you know, there there was sometimes pain of, are we being punished because we're, you know, mm-hmm. gay. Right. And the, the, ultimately we know we weren't and we're fine and it's all good. But like in that moment of just like feeling so sad that it takes 30 million extra steps for us to just have this thing that, you know, a straight couple can very easily have a fun night at a bar and accidentally get pregnant. (laughs) Right. And like, and it costs the, you know, two drinks worth and that's it. So really just talking to each other, allowing ourselves to feel sad in certain moments and mourn that moment and that time. But then also, yeah, going out, having a nice dinner, doing the fun things that you love to do and having that time you know, was, was super important kind of in the midst of all of these meetings, all of these appointments, all of the medicine, like that, you know, not losing sight of just the the fun that we can have together too.
0: Yeah. Connecting to that aspect of yourself and yourselves as a relationship and figuring out how you can still find that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Will you take me back to then the process of starting IVF and and continue us on your fertility journey?
3: Yeah. After we made the decision to start IVF. We took the correct turn at the right time. And while it was scary when I was sitting in the doctor's office, and that's the direction that we were going in, you know, I I came home maybe feeling a little bit defeated, but, you know, I knew that we had to do a couple of things. We had to get new sperm. And so I remember, you know, just going back on the website. Our previous sperm donor that we had purchased there were sold out of that particular donor, which in turn I think was a good thing. I'm glad we didn't just go back because. It could have been the sperm and, mm-hmm. and my eggs just didn't, didn't jive, whatever. We found a great donor. I think I remember, I think I, I searched for a while. I remember showing Katie this donor and I was like, he looks like you guys could be related. <laughs> like I, I was so excited and the medical history all checked out. So we checked that box, we found that sperm. And then we really, we started right away. I, you know, the doctor, I think I went and had another meeting. We ordered, we did all the Drug ordering. I remember going to pick it up. It was a really big bag. I grabbed the bag. I went directly across the street to a restaurant and had a glass of wine with my bag of drugs (laughs) sitting with me. And I was just like, just breathe. But this is going to get us to our babies, which is ultimately what we wanted. And Between the time I picked up the meds to when we found out I was pregnant was maybe like 37 days. Like it was pretty fast. Oh, wow. Again, not everybody's journey is that way, but I didn't know that it could all happen that quickly. I think I took birth control for like four days just to like regulate my period. And then once we were ready to go, I think it was like 20 days of the meds and they're monitoring me pretty regularly. And we had a very successful egg retrieval for myself. I probably did maybe a couple extra days of the medication that I don't know that we should have done, but ultimately I think they pulled like 32 eggs, Wow! which is not everybody's story. And I've sat with so many friends and close colleagues that, that didn't have the same outcome. And so we're very, we're grateful for what we had, but I'm trying to be super mindful that that doesn't usually happen. Our eggs did take really well to the sperm. And we, we had, I think we had about eight or nine really strong viable embryos that, that we had.
0: Amazing,
3: we had great success. I think my recovery from egg retrieval was pretty rough because obviously my ovaries ballooned up. Oh, it took me a while to recover. We had big decisions to make with our doctor at that point because they can do two one of two things you can do a fresh transfer where they fertilize the eggs for you know maybe a week, five to seven days, implant you right away. But your body has to have recovered from the egg retrieval enough before they, they feel like they do that because otherwise, you can have ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome mm. which they really try to monitor you for because if you get pregnant all of your hormones can keep growing your your ovaries can remain or grow larger which we made the decision I was feeling okay by day 5 we were really excited we decided to go with the fresh transfer we were very fortunate and grateful that about 9 days later we found out that we were pregnant wow. so after a lot of failed IUIs, we did have a very successful time with IVF. Obviously, we we had a lot of eggs and we had some strong embryos. I did end up having ovarian hyperstimulation. So mm-hmm. about four months into my pregnancy, I had all of a sudden just like doubled over in pain in our apartment.
2: Projectile vomit.
3: Couldn't stand. Oh. And we didn't know what it was. And obviously, when you're pregnant, you know that like any feeling like that is terrifying. I can handle a lot of pain. I was crying, couldn't stand up. We went in the middle of the night. I don't know that we picked the best ER. It felt like it was on my back, potentially by my kidney. Katie had recently had kidney stones, so I'd seen that. Oh, brutal. They could not figure out what it was. I was in the hospital for three days. They were monitoring baby and she was good. Good. I think I got out of the hospital and maybe like four or five days later, when I could finally like walk again, I went to my OBGYN. They did one ultrasound. They're like, you're left ovary is this big. Put me on bed rest. He's like, you can't go to work anymore. I was also in the middle of a new business pitch at work. It was a very stressful time. So I worked from home for pretty much the rest of my pregnancy. Once I was working from home for a while and a lot less travel stress, I started feeling a lot better. Two years later, when I tried to get pregnant again with our our one-year-old, they found out that my left ovary had twisted and pretty much shut off. Like, I don't grow follicles. I don't produce any eggs out of that ovary anymore. I'm really lucky because that could have been a a fatal situation that it it pretty much burst. My ovary was like bumping into all my other organs. So it was difficult, but we got our baby girls and everything worked out.
0: Yeah. How scary though to go through that. I'm really sorry, but I'm glad it worked out ultimately. So you had your now four-year-old and then when did you guys know you were ready for a second or what was that process of gearing up for another round of this like? I have siblings I'm five
2: and 10 years apart from, and that was kind of a big gap. Kristen has a sister that you're two and a half years apart from, and we kind of knew that we wanted to have, you know, siblings that were close in age, so we were just kind of coming out of, like, the blackout mode of, like, new baby on our first child, and it just so happened to be, what, September of 2019? like. If we would have known what was coming, right? It's good
3: we didn't know. Oh. It's good we didn't know.
2: Yeah. yeah, no, it's great we didn't know. But yeah, we it was, again, the first try, right, babe?
3: Yeah, I think when uh, our oldest was a year and a half, you know, you start doing the pregnancy math, you know, depending on what you're looking for in your family dynamics. You know, we, we were trying to get them to go to school together for a few years here and there during, you know, elementary and high school. I got to go to school with my sister in high school for two years, which I was grateful for it. I think you go through similar life stages together, we were ready. The embryo transfer, if you have frozen embryos, is actually pretty easy. I think that from the time we went into our first doctor appointment to when we found out we were pregnant was maybe like 20 days.
0: Now you have two babies. That's so amazing. We do. We do. Is there anything about the experience of IVF that you feel like is a misconception or you wish people were more familiar with?
2: One thing we were kind of blindsided by was the egg retrieval process. Maybe we were told, ah, like take a day off, like just one day. I You know, i always told friends and people I know now uh, that are kind of potentially going through egg retrieval, I'm like, give yourself a week, like truly give yourself a week for your body to heal and recover again with what Kristen went through with, you know, with her egg retrieval and the state of her ovaries kind of after that. Yeah, I think they said for every egg that's removed, it releases fluid, right? And so if she had 36 eggs, I mean the amount of fluid released from that, it's uncomfortable, it's painful, it's it's something that needs, you know, time for healing and and rest. And I think obviously we're in a different world now where virtual working is so much more acceptable, but we were getting pregnant during a time where it was still butts and seats in offices <laughs> every day and and So I feel like that was sort of a thing that nobody really told us about of like the egg retrieval day itself and what Kristen would be like. And then the week after, Mm -hmm. I feel like, yeah, for people, if they can take the time to be able to take more days off or be able to work from home for that.
3: And then if you're working for a company where, you know, you're getting insurance through your company or however you have insurance to check with them more and more companies are starting to provide fertility insurance you know obviously the the more we talk about it the more that it's going to become a more regular thing my company i think at the time if you pick a fertility doctor or center clinic within a certain group you got maybe ten thousand dollars lifetime help with fertility since then i think they've actually increased it to 15k obviously it's not going to cover everything but it certainly helps you can use it for medications, although our doctor recommended you don't. And this is a tip that my doctor told me. And, you know, somebody could refute it. I, I'm not a doctor or a pharmacist, but, you know, if the drug companies know that you're billing your insurance, they may raise prices and eat mm-hmm. up your lifetime max fertility coverage. So we, we kept ours to all of our appointments, any treatment in the office. We were fortunate enough to be able to pay out of pocket for the the medicine, but that's a pretty big undertaking for people. So
0: Absolutely. A couple times you've mentioned your team. Will you tell me a little bit about who your team is composed of and why it's important to have a team around you?
3: My immediate team, I mean Katie's obviously shared how she, you know, really is always wants to be a part of everything that we go through you know, when you're trying to get pregnant, it can be very lonely. And so knowing that Katie was there with me as much as she could be and would talk to me, try to get me to explain how I was feeling. A lot of times I can't, I still can't do that always. Um, If she sees I'm going to get upset about something or if if something's bothering me, sometimes I can't articulate it, but she's always there to ask. Outside of the two of us, I leaned into my acupuncturist a lot. She was my therapist and my acupuncturist. She really helped me to just calm my body, calm my mind, remind me that you know, people go through this, that everything I was feeling was totally valid. And that one of the hardest things is, is just time, right? So you can do it. You just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And then I did a lot of yoga when I was pregnant and my yoga instructor became our doula. We still wanted to have like a hospital birth, but I really, I'm somebody likes to really have a good understanding of what's happening at every moment. And I had heard that, you know, if you're in the hospital, obviously you don't have a nurse sitting by you at any point. Um, and so just having her there where she knew exactly where I was in my pregnancy by the different type of moan that I was making, which I thought was really interesting.
2: It's
0: amazing.
3: Our second birth was during the pandemic where we couldn't have the doula with us, but she was on the phone. And so at the peak of my contractions, she was listening to me and she said, oh, you're like eight centimeters. You know, if you want an drill, this is the time to do it. Make, you know, just tell them you want it now and, and don't wait another minute because it's going to take them time, you know? So just talking to me, through it, leading up to it, understanding what different types of massages Katie could do on me or different positions I could be in to help have the baby drop as quickly as possible. And remind me that this is a once or twice in a lifetime opportunity. Mm -hmm. Try not to miss it. We had battery powered candles, like aromatherapy sprays. We made playlists. We tried to really like have a calm environment in the hospital and bring our babies into that.
0: I love that a good reminder that you can customize these experiences. We think of birth. I think sometimes we get so cookie cutter about what that might or might not look like. And so it's so great to be able to be like, bring in your favorite music, bring in what's going to relax you. Cause boy, it's wild. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing like it.
2: Yes. We remember the song that our first daughter came out, you know, into the world too. Right. And like that song's forever going to have a, a, kind of a deeper meaning for us. And, and, it's beautiful. you know, those little yeah, just trying to sweeten life in any way you can in those moments. Yeah. And then the other part of the team, I think is like, we are very lucky to have a really kind of core close group of friends who for our first daughter, they were allowed to come into the hospital and like, you know, be with us and bring a snack. And, and we had, you know, a meal train of like people bringing us food sort of that week or two after we're very grateful and lucky to have parents who could be there in that first month, you know, with, Mm -hmm. with us. And, and I think that's sort of the other key piece of the team of just like friends who were checking in on us and, you know, making sure we were okay. And it was a really beautiful new time. Right. We Mm -hmm. just, I can just distinctly remember looking over at Kristen after she had delivered our first daughter and our daughters in the little like bed in between us, like in the hospital room. And, we both were just like, oh my god! Like, what do we do now? Like, <laughs> we're just like one of us needs to stay awake and just watch her because she also was yeah. the baby that instantly, day one, would bust out of the swaddle and like pull it up over her face and is just like breathing oh. into swaddle blanket. And I was like, oh my god! At
3: one point, I was like, Katie, or I think you even rec- you're like, I'll stay up because I couldn't. There's no way I could sleep unless I was staring at that child.
0: Yes, I could not agree with you more, and to go back to what you're saying, I think just remembering you have that community and each other and the ways that you can support each other in that is, it's really beautiful.
3: Yeah. I think one more team member, just like, you know, my sister had two kids, maybe four and two years apart from us. She struggled with breastfeeding and kind of, she was one of the people that was telling me like, this isn't going to be easy. Yes, People don't talk about breastfeeding enough. I think it's maybe starting to get talked about a little bit more, but knowing that it can be genetic too. Like however it happens in your family, you know, she's like, I want you to know that was really hard for me. I didn't make enough milk. I really wanted to do it. And no matter how much you tell yourself, like, eh, if it doesn't work out, no big deal. No matter how much I told myself that I wasn't listening to myself, yeah. I didn't make enough milk. And that was something that I really had to work with. A postpartum therapist, like getting over the breastfeeding and the the stress and the trauma that I had from that, wanting something to work so badly. And it just didn't work for me, even though I told myself going in like, I'm okay with formula. No big deal. It just, again, was one of those moments that I couldn't control. Yeah. So having her to help me through it and to remind me like, same thing, you're doing everything you can. It's you're, you're fine. And it's okay to look to, to other avenues to feed your kid. I met with the lactation specialist a couple different times through the hospital. And also my doula recommended somebody. And, you know, I, I tried to listen to all the different things I can be doing. Take this pill, take that pill, eat this thing. And it just,
2: mm-hmm.
3: some of it I did and some of it I've just like Then sometimes you feel bad too. Like, am I not putting enough into this? Then for me, I I just at one point had to draw the line and then, you know, decide that she's going to be okay and I'm ready to just move on from this.
0: How did you know that you wanted to see a postpartum therapist?
3: I think I did not feel like myself. You know, I think I mentioned in the beginning of this, I'm a pretty positive, happy person and things weren't always as joyful for me as they were in the past. And I was stressed about, more things, you know, like the first birthday coming up or, you know, so I just, I just want to check in with myself. I had done a mommy and me group when our oldest was really young. And a lot of the people that led the group were postpartum therapists. And so I just called one of them and I said, I don't know if I have postpartum, but I'm feeling a little bit low and I want to find myself again. I think I just, you know, I, I, something isn't fully connected back post baby. And I know I'm not going to be the person I was before I had children, I'm not looking to be her, but I do want to, you know, find a little bit more of that joy, find out what might be making me a little bit sad. And we did some walking therapy sessions, which was great. She'd meet me by my work. We'd walk at lunch and talk.
1: Mm -hmm. And
3: after doing a lot of talking, a lot of it was wrapped in my trauma of breastfeeding. Because other things like, you know, we're fortunate we had, I had a team of, of, of friends to come help us. My parents were out here. I, you know, I was back to work. Being back at work actually felt good, but- I I put so much pressure on myself so talking through it with the therapist you know her reminding me that hey let's let it out let's cry together and find ways to to work through it and, and move forward and and I I did that I also went to Joshua tree wrote some things on paper about breastfeeding through in a fire and I swear I felt better after after I got through all that
0: it was helpful <laughs> Is there anything that we have not touched on that you want to add before we close you know we
2: have like a weekly meeting years before we had our daughters of like where we come together and we talk about the things that are important to us and finances. And so, you know, for us in our journey, this was something that we saved for, that we Mm -hmm. diligently planned for. And, you know, Kristen you were early to mid thirties when you had our first daughter mm-hmm. and, you know, timing of all of that stuff, it, it took years, you know, it took years to save. It was worth it. It was what we wanted. You know, we, we knew that we wanted to be together, get married, plan for a wedding. And then it was save and plan for babies, have babies, you know, and kind of continue on from there. And so I think that's just something for anybody listening out there of, of, The sooner you know if there is potentially a challenge in your your kind of journey and plan, right? The sooner you can save, the sooner you can, you know, kind of create that plan. And I think because we are same-sex couple, we just always knew that there was not going to be, you know, the same, the same path and we were gonna have to save for that money. But Mm for hetero couples, like, you know, these kinds of things pop up and it's like to, you know, when they talk about rainy day savings and you know, I think the financial piece of this can be a huge burden on families. Mm -hmm. And, and if you are not lucky enough, like Kristen was to have an insurance plan at a company that totally supports IVF, you know, there's a lot of companies that think that's a political kind of thing that they don't want to get involved with. But it's also something for you to think about too, as you're on your career path of you as a woman working somewhere, and you're, you know, you've got two job offers, maybe look into the insurance, you know, and, and stuff like this, if you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and having babies is still something that, you know, you want to explore, if there's a $30,000, you know, insurance fertility benefit, like, that's huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's a piece of like, there's the, there's the medical and emotional piece of, of, the fertility journey that like, we're all still kind of figuring out, but I feel like the financial journey is something that like barely anyone talks about. And, you know, as women, we should speak up more. And and if there are those opportunities too at your companies of, you know, if HR or places are asking like, what could be better at this company? It's like, bring it up, ask for it. You know, it can't hurt to kind of advocate for that part of you because also companies really do want you to prolong, you know, to put off having babies as long as possible. So you can be as productive for them as possible. But, but I think that's a piece of it of just the financial part. We always knew going in, it was going to be a big chunk of dough. And that I think really minimized tension for us as a couple, because we, we just knew that. And, you know, we're on the same page about that.
3: Yep. Get your spreadsheets out, make your plan. Do as much as you can. The fact that we were able to say yes to some of these things because we had saved for a long time for it made some of the conversations a little easier for us, but we realized not everybody's in that situation or had the opportunity to plan. But the more you can just openly talk about it and kind of like map it out, is really helpful.
0: That's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people find you?
3: I have an Instagram at
0: Kristen Aaron. I can
3: send that to you
2: if you want to see pictures of our babies. <laughs> I'm 219, the number 219, a prods, P-R-O-D-S. That's the production company. Follow at 219prods to see what I've got going on when I'm not parenting. And I have to say one final plug for Kristen. Kristen is known in Southern California and L.A. and friend groups for putting together the best postpartum birth kits. Like, you know, what is it? Padsicles. Yeah. Uh, all yeah. these oh, little things. Essential. That she curates this sort of thing that like now once somebody gets it they're like oh i got all these gifts after baby was born but yours was the only one i used and so if anybody needs a kit put together kristen murray is amazing at it
3: oh you're sweet i've just done it for yeah some some friends and family and i I like putting gifts together for people because i found those things to be so helpful from the recovery of you know your, your ice packs Yes. and your tux pads and all that even to breastfeeding comes you need a lot of stuff for your your bra pads and creams and you know all all different kinds of things so yeah,
0: yeah
3: that's that's just been something fun I've, I've helped friends with
0: that's incredible thank you both so much i've loved talking thank to you. you celeste
3: thank you for what you're doing too
0: yay thank you so much <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Week by Week. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Instagram at weekbyweekpodcast and visit our blog at weekbyweekpodcast.com. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and additional resources I used in reference during this episode. This podcast was produced during the COVID-19 pandemic and recorded remotely. Our show today was produced by me, Celeste Busa, Dave Hill, and Douglas Sarine, and produced and edited by Colleen Beasley. Week by Week is a Gumption Pictures production.